Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We will now continue with our regularly scheduled programming, by which I mean we are dipping back into the past, into the month of March, and resuming with my sermon series on the book of Romans. You remember the last Sunday that we met in person, I preached on the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 11. And we're going to pick up now, beginning in verse 11 and continuing through verse 16. I'm sure that that last sermon on the first 10 verses is still sharp in your mind. And probably most of you will have listened to it maybe on the drive over just to keep it fresh. But just in case, just in case, uh, let's do a little bit of review before we dive in. So remember, in Romans chapter 11, we've reached the point in Paul's discourse where he's, he's dealing with the reality that Israel as a nation or as an ethnic people largely have rejected Christ. The Messiah was coming to Israel. He came, but Israel, as the prophets were told, have rejected the Messiah. And now Paul is working through what that means. What is the significance of that rejection? So in Romans 11, in the first part that we've already looked at, Paul's point in looking at the rejection of Israel was really to point out that that rejection was not entire. It's not true that all of Israel rejected the Messiah. Because obviously Paul himself is a Jew. All of the apostles of Jesus were Jews. The early church, they were all Jewish. The Bringing in of the Gentiles happened later. The very foundations upon which the church is built is Jewish. If that's the case, then it seems obvious that Israel in its entirety has not rejected the Messiah. Now, in the next section, what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, if you start in verse 11 and you go all the way to verse 24, similar point, but a little bit different. If the first point is that the rejection of Israel is not entire, the second part is that the rejection of Israel is not final. It's not final. So it's not entire to begin with, but now Paul casts into the future and says, not only is it not entire, but it also isn't final. This rejection doesn't speak the final word. Now, to make that point, Paul uses from verse 11 to verse 24, but we're going to break those verses into two parts. So this morning, we're just going to look at verses 11 through 16. We see that Yahweh's plan for cosmic redemption, as it becomes visible to his people, starts to teach us his intent. And when we see he has the intent to lavish riches on the world, it starts telling us that maybe we have reason to hope that salvation in the the final analysis, will be better than we think. That God intends to do something even more marvelous than we had anticipated, that there is hope even for seemingly hopeless cases. That's what we'll look at this morning. And the next time, we'll look at verses 17 through 24 
where we get more into the metaphor of the olive tree and the branches. And we see the way that God has not planted a new tree, but rather has grafted branches onto the one tree of life. So let's take a look at our scripture this morning. Starting in verse 11, we'll read through verse 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. As much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray your blessing on your word. We ask that it would speak to us and teach us and instill within us a boundless hope. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When people come to pastors with questions, the questions, of course, are various. You could fill books with all the different permutations of advice that is sought, but you can really boil it all down to... uh, basically three kinds of question, and really it's one kind of question expressed three different ways. It's basically, what should I feel or think or do about X? Whatever the scenario is, whatever the the difficulty that we find ourselves in, whether it's wrestling with a difficult passage in the Bible or wrestling with a difficult situation, when you go to your pastor, you're usually asking, okay, how should I feel about this situation because I'm confused? Or, or how should I think about this rightly? Or what should I do about this because I, I'm not sure? When we are uncertain, when we're confused, that's the kind of questions that we ask. Orienting questions, needing to know how to feel, how to think, what to do. Now, there's a kind of question that is behind Romans 11, and it has to do with how to feel and how to think and what to do, how to feel, what to think, what to do about rejection, what to feel, what to think, and what to do about those who reject the gospel, those who reject Christ, those who have contempt for believers, those who slander and even persecute us. How should I feel about that? How should I think about that? What should I do? How should I regard them? How should we think about them or feel about them? Or what should we do about them? That's the question that Paul is answering for us and answering it in a way that I'm going to argue is very unexpected. Not surprisingly, when Paul comes to this question of what to think and feel and do about them, he approaches it through a grid 
of Jesus, the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the Savior who said to love one another, who said to love your neighbor as yourself, who said to love your enemy. So that when Paul asks the question, the answer he arrives at is entirely different from the way that we usually answer such questions. Paul illustrates what love looks like and demonstrates hope for what seem like hopeless cases. He makes what you might think of as a twofold argument against the idea that the rejection of Israel is final. There's two ways of rebutting that assumption. Uh, The first one is actually summed up in the last verse that we looked at, verse 16, and it's summed up in those metaphors of uh, and branches. Our ultimate hope and confidence is in God's covenant promises, not in ourselves or not in others. Our confidence in whether or not what God says will come to pass is not rooted, in other words, in the heart of the individual. It isn't based on the individual. Ultimately, that hope is anchored in God, in God's promises. That's the first point, but we're going to deal with that one last. The second point he makes is summed up in these if-then propositions that he makes in verse 12 and verse 15. This is where he says, no, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will a full inclusion mean? He's looking at the reality of the rejection of Christ. He sees uh, the vast majority of his people, ethnically, his tribe, so to speak, have rejected Christ, have rejected his gospel. And so, how should he feel about that? Well, he seems to find a silver lining. If this catastrophe has led to such a great outcome for the Gentiles, he asks himself, How much greater would it be if that catastrophe were turned around? That's his second point, but we'll look at that first. You can have hope for hopeless cases when your trust is in God's covenant promise, not in the power of the individual. When you see the way that Paul writes about rejection in Romans 11 and also elsewhere, it might seem at first like Paul's a little bit confused because sometimes he seems to think that Israel rejected God. And other times he seems to think that God rejected Israel. And you scratch your head and say, okay, but which one is it? I think we've seen enough in the book of Romans to understand that Paul can answer that question with, yes, both. It's complicated. That God is so sovereign that he operates on a level so much higher than us that that God doing what God does doesn't somehow cancel out what we do, but enables it. And so it's possible for us to acknowledge the the willful rejection and condemnation of men towards Christ, but at the very same time to see, even in that, the hand of God. It's complicated. It's mysterious. And the two don't cancel each other out. But Paul here, without much complexity, without much mystery, when the question comes up of whether or not Israel has fallen finally, he doesn't get into a lot of argumentation. He immediately responds emphatically, no, of course not. He immediately rejects the thought that God is finished 
not just with Israel in the sense of all of the elect, not just with Israel in the sense of the church, but with his ethnic people, with with the Jews. Paul says, no, God is not finished with us, even if they have rejected Christ. He continues to hope for them. He continues to maintain hope. And that hope fuels his actions. And his actions, what he does, is he provokes jealousy. He notes it twice here in our passage that he sees one of the purposes of his ministry with the Gentiles as the provocation of jealousy among his fellow Jews in order to save them. He says in verse 11, God has done what he's done in receiving the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That he in his ministry, when he magnifies that ministry, he does it to make my fellow Jews jealous in verse 14. The Greek word there, it's translated jealous, has the sense of to provoke emulation. So it's a kind of jealousy that, that provokes action. It stimulates you to do likewise. Jealousy. Seeing what God is doing in the Gentiles, he says, would lead his brothers and sisters to take hold of something that they had a right to, but they did not value. That seeing what was happening over there might get them to care for what they'd been given. The same way that a child with lots of toys is indifferent to those toys until another child plays with them. And then suddenly it becomes the most precious object That child possesses, and no level of violence is unjustified to retrieve that lost toy or the way that a person who's indifferent to the faith that they grew up with, the knowledge that was instilled within them, suddenly sees the zeal of a stranger, an outsider, a person who has newly discovered Christ and is prompted to believe himself or herself. Jealousy, but in a good way. Seeing what God does there makes me think I ought not to have neglected the promises of people, your tribe. You may feel a burden for your class, for people like you, for your colleagues. But you struggle how to think about them how to feel about them, and what to do about them, because it seems as if they've rejected the hope that you have for them. So the question is, what would love prompt us to feel and to think and to do in regard to those people? Oftentimes, when people reject what we value, we respond by rejecting them. But what would love prompt us to do differently? This is where the covenant root of hope Comes in. In verse 16, Paul says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Metaphors. And you have to dig into those things and ask yourself, what's he talking about there? The first one has to do with baking, and the second one has to do with agriculture. He digs into the second one in the next section, so we'll save that and we'll just stick with, with baking for a moment here. What does he mean? about the dough being holy, and so the lump is holy. If the, the, the starter is holy, then so is the loaf that comes from it. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a kind of offering that was made 
a bread offering. In Numbers 15, you hear the command. This is Numbers 15, verses 18 through 21. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. You'll do exactly what we've just done in, in offering our, our tithes and offerings. You'll give a, a first fruits of that bounty to the Lord. Contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. In Ezekiel 44, it's repeated. The first of all the first fruits of all kinds and every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall belong to the priests. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough that a blessing may rest on your house. So the idea is by giving the first fruits, by giving the, the dough, all of, of the rest is blessed. All of the rest is sanctified. So the question is, in this analogy, what's, what's the dough and what's the lump? Like what's the starter and, and what's, the, what's the loaf? And people argue over the interpretation of subtleties like this, but if you dig into it, you'll find that what Paul has in mind here as, as the dough, he's thinking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's thinking of the patriarchs, the covenant receivers in the first instance, the ones who the promises God made them established the covenant community in the first place. And he's finding a way to recognize their descendants and see a holiness that attaches to their descendants through those generations because of those first fruits. It's something you're familiar with in, in our terminology when we talk about the covenant community. And we baptize our children and give them the sign of inclusion in the covenant community. And that baptism testifies to the promises of God in their lives. We recognize that not everyone who receives that outward call responds inwardly. And it's certainly possible, and it happens frequently that people who receive these outward signs never confess faith. But we recognize in that a kind of holiness. And you say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound right. Holiness, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 14, when he talks about the status of a child in a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Paul says these interesting words. Is when a believer and an unbeliever are married, that the believing spouse sanctifies and makes holy the unbelieving. And that the child that proceeds from their union is similarly sanctified, holy, or set apart. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What he's talking about here is their status within the covenant community. That there's a hope that attaches to the promise, a hope that we can cling to even when the individual rejects the substance of the promise. That we can continue to hope for God to do a work within them. Because the hope's not based on their rejection, on their hardness, on their unbelief, the hope is based on God's goodness and God's promise and God's power to do what God wants to do. 
which is why we can have hope for the hopeless cases. The external call on their lives gives us hope that there will be an internal call and that someday it will be answered. We don't have to reject those who reject us. In fact, we mustn't reject those who reject us. We must bless those who curse us. Theologian W.G.T. Shedd wrote these words, The fact of the external call justifies the expectation of the internal. Not that the former is the ground of the latter, or that the latter necessarily and in every single instance follows from the former. Spiritual election does not rest upon the fact that the individual has the outward means of grace any more than upon his works or personal merit, but solely upon the decision of God. Nevertheless, the fact of the outward call is a valid reason for expecting and hoping for the inward call and not giving up. Not giving up on anyone. Not relegating anyone to the category of hopeless cases. You'll have hope for hopeless cases, not only when your trust is in God's promises, but also when you see God's plan of redemption, his cosmic plan of redemption, and it inspires in you a eucatastrophic mindset, which are words I hope you didn't anticipate hearing, but you should have a eucatastrophic mindset. I'll explain what that means in a moment. I realize this idea of having hope for everyone, even those who actively reject Christ, who say, I will never believe, but continuing to hope and to trust and to claim the promises on their behalf may seem Pollyanna-ish. It may seem unlikely. But the Apostle Paul is a man whose conversion was also unlikely. A man who murdered the saints of the church only to become one. So it would be difficult to argue for him that he was being too optimistic. You couldn't convince him, Paul, there's some people you just can't reach because he was one of them and he was reached. What God did to him may seem like uh, like you'd be hoping against hope. Like to hold out for that, that every Saul will become a Paul, it just seems like it's unlikely. But the point is that hoping against hope is what gospel-shaped hearts always do. What we're called to do in Christ is always to hope against hope. If you're not hoping against hope, then you need some sanctification in your life because you're not there yet. Because part of what it means to follow Christ is to hope against hope, against all expectation. When Paul trespass, failure, and rejection, and yet when he looks at the future of his people, he sees fullness, and he sees acceptance, and he hopes for life from the dead. Ironically, he doesn't dwell on the terrible deeds that they're guilty of. What he dwells on is the wonderful transformation that their salvation would be. Wouldn't it be amazing if God turned them around? Wouldn't it be amazing if God's praise were sung from those lips? What a marvelous thing that would be for God to do. And isn't that exactly the sort of God he has revealed himself to be? Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
Or if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This isn't wishful thinking. This is gospel thinking. This is Jesus thinking. We need a word for that, and that's the the term that I'm coining here is eucatastrophic mindset. Let me explain what that is. Eucatastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien invented this word. He just made it up. He needed a word to describe a thing, and uh, English hadn't come up with one yet. So eucatastrophe, E-U, catastrophe. So it means a sudden climactic turn for the good. I'll give you an example. So if you're supposed to destroy the ring, but instead at the last moment you decide to keep it for yourself, that is a catastrophe. But if after doing this, some even more evil person attacks you to steal the ring and in the process destroys himself and the ring, that is a you catastrophe. Because it looked like everything was going to be terrible and at the last moment it turned around for the best. If you're finished with your quest, Uh, and yet you find yourself surrounded by molten lava and about to be consumed, that's a catastrophe. But if suddenly you look up in the sky and there are giant eagles swooping down to carry you to safety, that's a catastrophe. Because somehow victory has been snatched from the jaws of defeat. And there should be a word for that, Tolkien said, because that's the world God has made. Because that's the way that God works. Critics dismiss this kind of thinking. There's a term you learn in in literature class, deus ex machina, God from the machine, because a a Greek playwright, if he couldn't figure out how to fix the problems of his own plot, he just had one of the gods swoop down and fix it for him because he was just lazy. And so that's the way that they would dismiss this sort of thinking. Deus ex machina is an unfair solution to a problem that the author can't get out of himself. But what if reality is exactly that? What if the reality that we find ourselves facing is a problem that we cannot solve ourselves? Well, that would be a catastrophe. But what if God came down and dwelt among us and gave himself for us and united us to him so that we might have salvation? Well, that would be a catastrophe. That would turn it completely around. And the more of the gospel that Paul sees, and the more of the gospel that we see, the more you begin to think, maybe that's how God works. My cynicism, my despair, are an evidence of sin working in me, not an evidence of my maturity and the fact that I see things the way they really are. Remember, Paul himself was a hopeless case. If there was hope for him, why wouldn't he think that there would be hope for anyone? The hope that we're talking about here is not a separate way of salvation. I'm not saying that Paul is hoping that even though they've rejected Jesus, on the day of judgment, God will say, I'm giving everybody a pass. I don't care who you believed in. I don't care who your Savior was. Everybody come on in. That's not the hope that Paul is talking about. Paul's hope is that they will be reconciled to Christ, that they will come to trust in Christ, the Messiah, just as the Gentiles that he ministers to have. You think that hope is unrealistic, that it's crazy to think that way. The scriptures answer and say, until you're thinking that way, you're not thinking rightly about the world that God has made. 
The Father sent the Son because He was determined to lavish riches upon a rebellious world by embracing it to His bosom to make peace with it. That's who God has revealed Himself to be. And if that is the character of God, if He is capable of that much generosity, then what feat of love is beyond Him? You think of the family, the brothers and sisters of Paul, the people who had turned their backs on him, had rejected the Messiah who despised him and his faith. As far as he was concerned, if Jesus could save Saul, he can save them too, regardless of what they've done. You think of your family, your brothers and sisters, the ones who've rejected Christ, the ones who've despised you and your faith. Jesus could save you. He could save them as well. The riches that he's poured out on you, why couldn't they be for them as well? So love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and hope for their salvation and pray for it and work toward it and believe in it. When you're tempted to give up and when you're tempted to doubt and when you're tempted to think that you're being unrealistic, remember the kind of God we serve and the glory that he brings for himself in bringing hope to hopeless cases. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.